Some of you have visited the Mamertine prison in Rome on the uh, northeastern slope there of the Capitoline Hill. It's a holding cell that was originally built in the 6th century B.C. and was likely the place where the Apostle Paul was held during his imprisonments in Rome. It's a dark and a damp and a stinky place to this day when you walk down the uh, steps that have been constructed and you get down in there, you can feel the claustrophobia. You can, you can feel the misery and the deplorable conditions that must have been there. You can't even stand up, or at least someone like me can't even stand up straight the entire time that you're in there. It must have been a dismal experience, especially in those days. But it was from that prison that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a young minister, to Timothy. He wrote his final letter, 2 Timothy, as he was sitting there in incarceration, not only awaiting his trial, but awaiting what he seemed to know would be his certain death. He would lose his head. It would be lopped off from his body, and he'd be ushered into the presence of his Savior. And even facing all of those things, with all those sacrifices, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, and he tells Timothy this. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God. He goes on to say in a few more verses, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard that which he's entrusted to me into that day. That had to be intimidating to receive such a letter and such an admonition from such a man. Receive a letter like that, it appears to have come to a man who himself had a level of timidity. He didn't want to stand up to all of the powerful personalities around him. He didn't want to take a stand for the things of God. He didn't seem to have the same source of strength or the same force of character that the Apostle Paul had. He was not perhaps as outspoken, maybe even not as articulate. I mean, let's face it, most of us are not that way. We all struggle in certain environments with timidity. We all struggle knowing how to take a stand. We all of us have moments when we are ashamed uh, for one reason or another to open our lips and to speak for our Savior. We shy away out of embarrassment. We're worried that we may not have the right words to say. We fear somehow that others may not respond or understand. We are mindful of negative consequences. We are constantly thinking how we may put our reputation out there in jeopardy. I know there have been so many times in my own life where there were opportunities to clearly stand for the truth, to stand for Christ, to speak to someone who didn't know Christ. I should have asked them where they stood with Christ, but I didn't. And I think we all understand that, whether it's in our neighborhood or in the marketplace, whether it's in our recreation or our education or wherever it might be, we all understand the pain of shrinking away. That classic example of of the uh, Apostle Peter who went into the courtyard of Caiaphas the high priest on the night 
of Christ's trial and was directly asked, are you one of his followers? And he denied it, not once, not twice, but three times, even though he had been warned he would do so. And he went out and wept bitterly. We all know that pain. We've all had those moments when we should have spoken of our love for our Savior, but we hid instead. We've all had times when we should have spoken to those who are lost and without God. We should have shared the gospel that saved us, and we didn't. And so to hear the Apostle Paul writing from this stinky prison cell, this dark and musty place where he had already lost so much and now he was about to lose his life, to hear him say that we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind, to hear him say we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we feel a due amount of shame regarding our own weaknesses, don't we? And we want to, we long to grow in our courage and grow in our boldness and speak the way that such a servant of God would speak. We long to be able to put everything on the line. In fact, we understand inherently that if we're ever going to be truly effective in service to Christ, we're going to have to overcome those kinds of inhibitions. We're going to have to develop true boldness like unto our Savior and like unto the Apostle. Or like men like John Huss. John Huss, who some of you may know, was known as the morning star of the Reformation. He was the first one on the European scene who seemed to clearly articulate in the late medieval stage that, that, that justification by faith that became the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation in the church. He was the one who was eventually arrested and condemned and sentenced to be burned at the stake by the Catholic Church in 1415. And when they were tying him to the stake and getting ready to light the pyres on fire, he reportedly prayed out loud, Psalm 25, Oh my God, in you I trust, let me not be ashamed. Had to be a sobering thing. Those who watched on seeing someone pay the ultimate price. We have to mouth those words ourselves. Let me not be ashamed. We know that to reach a point where we'll really, really be vessels in the hands of the Lord, we must have this kind of unflinching, uncompromising commitment to proclamation of the gospel, no matter what. But to develop that, we, we don't always know how. How can we grow in this kind of boldness? Well, today I think we come to a passage that will help us tremendously. It's going to give us some insights from Paul's own ministry on why he was so bold when he did speak. In fact, this section begins, beginning there in verse 15, it begins an epilogue to his entire letter to Rome where he turns, you might say, very personal he begins to talk in a very personal way. He's finished the body of the letter, sort of the main arguments of the letter, and he begins to, to give these very personal comments about his ministry, running here from verse 15 down through verse uh, 21. And then in 22, he starts to talk about his 
future plans in partnership together with the church. And then chapter 16, he has this whole list of personal greetings that he gives to others from himself and from those who are with him. And then finally, a closing doxology at the end. But our focus this morning is on this section from verse 15 through 21, where Paul is basically explaining to the Romans why he has written so boldly to them. Why he was so bold in his proclamation of the truths that he shared. And if you have a NRSV Bible, a New Revised Standard Version, you'll notice the paragraph title there is, is listed, Paul's Reasons for Writing So Boldly. That's a good title for this section. Paul's Reasons for Writing So Boldly. And if you wanted to summarize his reasons, you could say it simply this, that his ministry was to them. His ministry was to the Gentiles. If, if, if you wanted to boil it down just to one thing, that was it. His, I spoke to you boldly because you're mine. You're my ministry. You're the ones who been, have, have been entrusted to my charge. But he doesn't leave it at just, that, at just that. In fact, if you look more closely at the text, I think Paul gives even a much more detailed answer that can help us a lot. He he does say he was, he was bold because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And obviously in the Roman church, most of them is, were Gentiles, as we've said. But his answer goes beyond that. And I think we'll find here four reasons, really in total, for his boldness. They're not reasons that were limited necessarily to Paul himself or to his situations. But four reasons, we might say, for anyone to have boldness in Christ. Any Christian who can who can understand what Paul says here, can understand how to develop a more bold testimony on behalf of his Savior. Let me just read these verses to frame them in our minds. Paul says in verse 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never seen, uh, excuse me, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." It's a passage that is extremely helpful to us to develop a boldness that is so vital to every effective minister of God. In fact, I was thinking about our expositor seminary emphasis and and thinking about different passages of Scripture that I could do to maybe highlight some of that. And I I came back to this passage and I thought, you know what, this is a message for, for those men who are in training and it's a message for us as well. A A catalyst. A motivation to speak the truth of God in the face of whatever consequences might come. And Paul gives us, I think, four 
of those motivations in his own life. The first one, in the first couple of verses here, the reason why Paul was so bold in verses 15 through 16 was that he had a direct mandate. A direct mandate in ministry. He says, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Just stop right there because if you just think about what he's saying, he doesn't rehearse all of the points But it probably includes everything he said, at least from chapter 12, where he was saying to this church, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Let your love be genuine. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Or even the command to submit to all the governing authorities, or to accept one another as Christ has accepted you. All of those things that Paul had said to them over and over again, those admonitions, all of them, of course, built on the entire body of truths that he had given them in the first 11 chapters. But whatever it is that Paul has in mind, he had a sense that he had spoken very strongly to them. And he wanted to explain to them why. Because the people, you have to understand, the people he's writing to, they're almost complete strangers. He had never met these people before. He had heard about them. He had some, maybe some mutual acquaintances, but he didn't know them personally. But he had written to them quite boldly, quite definitively. That's sometimes difficult to do. It's, it's hard enough to speak to people that you know. People that you already have maybe a little bit of rapport with. But then to come and speak to someone you don't even know who's a, who's a complete stranger and to speak to them forcefully about the things of God, that's difficult, uncomfortable. And Paul did that. And he says, hey, I was just saying these things by way of reminder. That's sort of softening, if you will. Sort of softens what he had just said. And it may very well have been true. He may have recognized that they had heard these things before. He understood this is the job of the preacher. To say things you already know. To say things again and again and again by way of reminder. You shouldn't imagine that I'm under any illusion when I stand up here every week that somehow I am going to wow you with some incredible new insight that you've never heard before. I recognize that my job uh, and my duty week by week is simply to remind you to say the same things to you that you've heard before. Now, hopefully to say them boldly enough and to say them forcefully enough so that they impact your life, but we're not necessarily breaking new ground every week. This is a job of a faithful preacher. Peter told his readers in 2 Peter 1, he says, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. He's saying, that's all you really should expect from me, as long as I'm in this body. That's what I think is the right thing for me to be doing. Or he says down in chapter 3, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm just saying what I already said, he's telling them. Or Paul told Titus, 
remind your people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Or Jude, and now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt after they were destroyed, after he destroyed those who did not believe, he saves us also. This is the job of a faithful preacher. And so Paul's doing that. He's saying things to them that he knew they already knew. In fact, that might have been one of the discomforts to know that they weren't necessarily living what they knew. They weren't always obedient to what they knew. And here he comes, some guy that they've never met before. They don't have any established relationship with. They've got their own sort of loyalties and leaders and all that. And he comes in and he speaks to them boldly, confidently. Paul had done that. And he wanted them to understand why. And he says, basically, it was this. He says, I've done it because I'm under divine orders. I have a divine mandate, a divine obligation. Because the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. I'm doing this because God has told me to do this. I'm doing this because God has given to me this ministry to speak to you. A divinely bestowed mandate by the Apostle Paul. Appointed to the Gentiles. You may not realize that, but that's something that you grapple with when you're in ministry. I mean, it's something I grapple with. From time to time, I have to sort of catch myself. I'm standing back and and maybe working on a sermon and preparing, and I have to face the reality and and ask myself, who who am I? I mean, who am I to stand up there and say these things, who's in his own process and his own journey of sanctification, who has his own falterings and failings and all that? Who am I? And at at those times, I'm reminded that I'm not preaching myself, I'm not preaching my life, I'm not preaching you know, anything coming from me. I am a mouthpiece for God. Every minister of God grapples with that. And so Paul says, look, I've been given this ministry. In fact, it was a gift of grace. He said it all the way back at the very beginning of the letter, Romans 1.5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, that is, among all the Gentiles. It's the grace, it's an undeserved gift that Paul would be chosen and called and appointed to take the gospel to these people. And his unique gift and his unique calling was to these Gentiles. He had been uniquely set apart for that. You remember when he was called in Acts chapter 9, he was blinded by a light on the road to Damascus and then God calls Ananias of Damascus and tells him to go out to find the Apostle Paul at the street called Straight to meet him and to minister to him. He says, go for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Or he told the Galatians, when you, he says, when he had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. So Christ had appointed His twelve apostles who were targeted, you might say, primarily towards the Jews, but then He had called out one 
the Apostle Paul, untimely born, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and sent him uniquely into this ministry. And he had this mandate. And the church at Rome would have been within the purview of that. And so he's basically telling them, look, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you and I'm speaking to you because it's my responsibility to do that. I've been given a charge to do that. I've been given a call and a commission to do that. It's not because you chose me to be over you. It's because God chose me for this ministry. Christ gave me an obligation to go to the Gentiles with the word of truth. So Paul could come to a group of people who were in some ways complete strangers and he could insert himself right into their situation and he could speak the truth of God, not because they had invited him, but because God had. Maybe the Romans felt like he was inserting himself where he didn't belong, but God didn't feel that way and that's all that mattered. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, knowing that there were people who didn't recognize his authority and challenged his authority, knowing there were people who questioned his voice and didn't respect his character and his giftedness and all those things, he could write to the Corinthians and he could say, this is how you should think of us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they might be found faithful. And so with me, it's a very small thing that I would be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not by this acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, that's the way you need to think about me. I'm not, I'm not uh, your steward. I'm not your whatever. I am a servant of Christ. And so all that really matters is not how you judge me, but how he judges me. And how he thinks I have done. I've been sent, he says, as a steward of the mysteries of God, the word of God, God's truth. And so even here in Romans, Paul's saying, look, I've spoken to you boldly for a reason. Because the grace that was given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. And I'm not serving myself and I'm not serving Christ. I'm not speaking my own beliefs. I'm not giving my own wisdom. I'm writing under a stewardship, under an obligation, under divine orders. Every minister has to understand that. They have to understand that, otherwise they will shrink away from saying what needs to be said when it needs to be said. We speak for God, and that requires boldness. No one really accepts that today. No one accepts authority in general. They certainly don't accept the authority of God, and they certainly don't like anyone who claims to speak in the authority of God. But that's our mandate. Every Christian has to understand this. That if you are here today and you are in Christ Jesus, you have been commissioned. You have been commissioned. Jesus says, going into all the world, make disciples. 
baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you, he says. You have my authority behind you. When you insert yourself into the lives of your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends, when you insert yourself and you speak to whatever the chaos is in their life, when you speak to them, you are speaking to them with the authority of God. You are a lighthouse. You've been commissioned to shine a light so that all those who are on whatever voyage into God's harbor that they might be, you have been given this light to shine and you have no right to put it out, to jeopardize, you might say, their journey. You, you have no right to go dark in your mission. And so we join in the Apostle Paul and we have to understand that we must speak boldly. We have a message that doesn't come from us. It doesn't stand on our own authority. It doesn't come from our own experience. It's not restricted by our intellect, not even our ability to defend it. It's not our message. We're just the mouthpiece. And so if people reject it, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting Christ. And that is supposed to give you boldness. Secondly, Paul says there at the end of verse 16 that he was motivated to this boldness not only out of a, a sense of this divine calling, but also out of a devotional offering. He says that he is in a kind of priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which is an interesting way for Paul to characterize his ministry. He calls himself a priest. He uses a word that's used throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, to talk about those men who would go in all of their garb into the temple and lay on the altar their incense and their spices and burn sweet-smelling aromas to God. And he sees himself as making to God an offering of these new believers that is acceptable and that is pleasing to his Savior. Perhaps he was thinking of some Old Testament passages like Isaiah 6, 66, excuse me. Isaiah 66, verse 18. I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as Israel, the Israelites, bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So here he is, Isaiah, picturing this messianic age where people are going to be bringing these these now brothers and sisters from all the nations, and just like Israel presented their grain offerings to the Lord, they're going to present these converts, these, these ones that they have shared the gospel with, as a fragrant aroma to the Lord. 
And so Paul sees himself in that kind of ministry. He's not just sharing the gospel to share the gospel. He's not just sharing the gospel to be a blessing to other people. He is sharing the gospel as an act of worship. You understand that? He shares the gospel as an act of worship. So all of this uh, bifurcation sometimes that we do between worship and evangelism has its lines kind of blurred when we begin to understand that the sharing of our faith is an act of worship. The Bible mentions a couple of ways that we can offer sacrifices to God. Hebrews 13 says, we offer to God the sacrifice of our praise. We come together and we sing, and like the priests of the Old Testament, we approach the altar with this kind of burning, pleasant incense an aroma before the Lord in our voices and in our songs. And of course, back in Romans 12, we saw in verses 1 and 2 how we present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable to Him. Our worship, in other words, is going beyond just the singing of songs. It involves the presentation of our entire lives to do the will of God and what pleases Him. But here, Paul presents what we might call evangelism as a vital act of worship. And he's saying that he's serving in this priestly sense, bringing these offerings to God. By the way, the language is not unique to Paul. Peter tells us that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that we might proclaim God's excellencies among the nations. Or in Revelation 1, John describes... Jesus as the one who loves us and freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom and priest to our God and Father. But this that Paul says here is explicit. This part of our priestly service in offering up the lives and souls of those that we've won to Christ. And you wonder if this was the way in which we measured our worship of of our God. If this is the way in which we measured how we're doing in our worship of God, how many of us can say that we have truly worshipped God lately? If this is what worship is. How many of us can say that we've even attempted to make an offering to God? But this is why Paul spoke so boldly. He wanted badly to make this kind of an offering. He wanted to worship his God. He wanted to do something that would be pleasing to him. He knew that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than the 99 that don't. So he wanted to make this offering. He wanted it to be acceptable. He wanted it to be sanctified, he says in verse 16, by the Holy Spirit, which is interesting. He's not manufacturing converts. He's not, he's not just generating a bunch of false conversions in order to build up his palate. He was presenting holy, acceptable, sanctified believers. You understand, in the Old Testament, it was an abomination for someone under the old covenant to bring a lamb or a bull or a goat that was marred or blind or defective or diseased. And so to preach the gospel 
but to not preach the whole gospel. In other words, to preach the gospel, but not preach both faith and repentance. To call for genuine conversion in holy lives that would present an offering that was sanctified by the power of the Spirit. That was unacceptable. And so Paul says, that's why I'm bold. That's why I'm bold. I cannot go without worshiping my Savior this way. Thirdly, verse 17, he's motivated for boldness out of a sense of a divine enabling. He understood as he says all these things, he understood when he claims what he claims, that these things can be misunderstood. To speak of his evangelistic efforts, to speak of his divine appointment for the Gentiles could come across to people as prideful. He understands, and so he wants to explain in verse 17 this this boasting, if you will. He says, in Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word Indeed, Paul says his boldness comes from the fact that God has specifically appointed him to this ministry, but in drawing attention to this ministry, he's not exalting himself. He, he was drawing attention to the fact that Christ was accomplishing things through him, that he was simply an instrument, a, a mouthpiece for Christ. No No bow ever took the credit for a violin virtuoso playing in an orchestra. Nor would Paul take the credit for whatever God had done through him. He had a deep sense of the fact that whatever happened in his ministry, it happened through Christ. People might shrink away from boldness because of this very reason. Because they might feel that to put themselves out there is in some way arrogant. They, they might shy away because they, they don't want to give the appearance of coming across as superior. And so they wouldn't speak as they ought to speak and they may not tell all the lessons they've learned or the work that God has done in them or they might feel like, uh, like drawing attention to those things draws too much attention to themselves. And Paul felt, certainly felt that tension and, and he wouldn't let it cause him to shy away from speaking boldly. And as a part of this boldness, he says, he gladly tells people that God not only appointed him to this ministry, that he's under obligation, but he would even tell them the way that God has used him. He, he would tell them, look, I'm here as a minister of God. I've been appointed by God to speak to you. And whether you want to recognize it or not, I am His voice. Inasmuch as I share the Word of God, I am speaking for God. As, as Peter says, let him who speaks speak by the oracles of God. When, when Paul spoke, he spoke with the oracles of God. And he did it. And God used him. And then he would tell of what Christ has accomplished through him. Paul's telling us, he says, I'll speak of it, but... He would only speak of it as the work of Christ. He wouldn't dare speak of it as if it were not Christ's work. I wouldn't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. 
In fact, Paul says in other places, if he ever did draw attention, if he ever did boast of himself, his attention was drawn to his weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5, On my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Or down in verse 9 of that same chapter, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest on me. He had a deep sense of what he had told the Corinthians much earlier, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul understood that. So he would make sure that people knew of his weaknesses. He'd make sure they knew of his failings and his fears. So that when he spoke boldly of Christ, they understood it had nothing to do with him. When I'm here speaking to you, when you're there speaking to someone else, we're not presenting ourselves. We're not telling people, of this life of faith because we have figured it all out. We're not telling people of this mighty work that God has done because we take the credit for everything He's brought into our lives. We're sharing with them out of our weakness and out of the glory of Christ. And so Paul says, I'm going I'm to boast. I'm going to boast about what God did through me, he says, by word and deed. That is, through my life and through my teaching. Paul understood that his ministry had to be a combination of both. You couldn't separate them. Too many people want to set themselves up as the instrument of God based on their oratory skill or their charisma or their knowledge or whatever it might be. But the Bible is very clear that your, my, your life must speak as loudly as your lips. And so Paul says, God's worked that way through me. And I'm not going to shy away from it. And you might think it's boasting, but it's not boasting in me. It's boasting in Christ. And then he adds, verse 19, in addition to his life and lips, that God also worked by power of signs and wonders, by by the power of the Spirit of God. I mean, this was inexplicable to Paul. He'd speak of it. Only so much as it exalted the glory of Christ and emphasized his own weaknesses. In fact, he tells the Corinthians that God gave him a thorn in the flesh so that because of the glorious revelations he had received, he wouldn't exalt himself. But the Lord had uniquely worked through Paul with these signs and wonders, which are a phrase that's used throughout the New Testament to talk about miraculous works. Signs indicating the the significant demonstration of, that they were pointing to, they were signs, they were pointing to something, and wonders indicating the effect that they would have in leaving people with a sense of amazement. And they were signs, they were pointers, they were, you might even say, accrediting marks, attesting marks. This is the way they're spoken of again and again in the New Testament, so that Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says that Jesus Christ was a man attested to you by signs and wonders and miracles. 
Or Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12 that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you by signs and wonders and miracles, speaking of his own ministry. So he's saying, look, this is the distinguishing mark that sets apart true apostles from false apostles. The fact that the true apostles were the ones who were able to do signs and wonders and miracles. It wasn't everyone that was doing those. If it was everyone, there wouldn't be signs anymore, right? If we just said, hey, you know, that um, apostle, yeah, he's the one over there with uh, the brown hair. I mean, we're going to like, who? I mean, everybody over there, like, has brown hair. But you say, you know, he's the one over there that's doing signs and wonders and miracles. Oh, yeah, that sets him apart. Now I know who he is. You go through the book of Acts, and this is what you read. Over and over again, many signs and wonders and miracles were doing, uh, being done among them by the hands of the apostles. Acts chapter 5, again, by the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders and miracles. And so Paul understands that God had given him these things to authenticate him. Because he was speaking, and unlike you and I, when he spoke, he was speaking with a divine authority laying the foundations of the church, going, we might even say, beyond what had already previously been revealed in the Old Testament, laying the foundations of brand new revelation. And so God needed something so that not everyone was out there claiming to have a word from God. He needed something to validate those that were His true spokesmen. And so He gave him these signs. And Paul says, I'll speak of this. But I won't venture to speak of it without telling you it was inexplicable to me. Because all I know is my own weakness and my own trembling. But this was the work of God. And I won't be ashamed of it. And he goes on. He says, he did the, he says this because it was in this way, he says, he was able to preach the gospel from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. He says, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I mean, these, these sort of the outer edges of his ministry. It'd be like saying, you know, I've preached everywhere from Miami to Denver, 1,400 miles. I've preached all this way from, from Jerusalem, where he didn't spend necessarily a lot of time, all the way to Illyricum, where also he didn't spend a lot of time. That's modern-day Croatia. And he preached all the way across that entire span. And he says, I fulfilled the ministry. Literally, I fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. He's not saying that he literally went to every little hamlet and every little village and preached the gospel to every soul that was there. But when you trace his ministry, you see his strategy. He went to all of the main economic and cultural hubs of those regions, the key cities throughout those regions, and he planted strong, vibrant churches. That was his strategy. And it was very successful. He would plant these churches in the major cities, and, and then those indigenous people would take the gospel out to the villages and all the surrounding regions, and it would sound forth, like he says to the Thessalonians, the gospel has sounded forth from you, into all of Achaia there. He says, the gospel sounding forth from these 
from these strategic centers so that the, 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 the areas we might say were saturated with the gospel. And it reflects Paul's understanding of evangelism, of fulfilling the Great Commission, not as winning just necessarily people to Christ, but the Great Commission was in the establishment of gospel-proclaiming churches. And so Paul didn't necessarily get bogged down trying to spend time in every little village. He focused his energies on these key cities, and over time, he saw his ministry of the gospel get fully preached in every region, so he could say, I fully did it. I preached it everywhere. Which leads to our fourth motivation in his boldness, very briefly. And that was his distinguished ambition. His distinguished ambition. Paul was ambitious. And we get uncomfortable sometimes around ambitious people. In some cases, rightly so, because their ambition is selfish ambition. They want to see themselves put on a pedestal. They want to see themselves exalted. Some people are ambitious for the Lord. And some people are ambitious for the kingdom. And this was Paul. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He had this particular ambition to see Christ preached where he had not been named. And again, when he says that, he's not necessarily thinking every distinct little village, every minor little uh, dialect within every group of people. He wasn't thinking that way. He was thinking broadly. He wanted to establish strategic churches so that the gospel was accessible in every region. Strategic churches throughout the Roman Empire. He wanted to see Christ proclaimed in every region. And then he he drives us home by reading from Scripture, Isaiah 52, as it's written, those who've never been told of Him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. He's quoting from Isaiah 52, which theologians refer to as one of the servant songs. Isaiah has these four servant songs, all of them talking ultimately about the coming servant. We're most familiar with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. When Isaiah prophesies about our, our... Savior, being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who was stricken and smitten on behalf of our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace, he took upon himself. See, Christ was a servant, and he took to himself a punishment from God so that you can have peace with God. And this is the message that Paul wanted to proclaim everywhere. And he he reads this, he understands this right out of the book of Isaiah and he wants to be a part of fulfilling that work. That is his ambition. He's not saying, look, it's wrong to, to build on the work that someone else has done. He's not minimizing the work of local churches or local leaders or local pastors or whatever. And he's not saying you're a second class citizen if somehow you're not on this radical path to find out where Christ has not been proclaimed and you go out there and do that he's not that at all in fact he would he would appoint elders and pastors in every place he would leave behind timothy and titus into these various churches 
He very clearly understood, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He knew that different people had different ministries. But for the ministry that was entrusted to him, he says, I was ambitious. I'm ambitious to be used by God. I want to be used greatly by God. I speak boldly because I don't want my influence and my impact to be small. I'm ambitious to preach Christ wherever He has not been named. And so I have this kind of a zeal, this kind of an ambition that gives me a boldness. See, when you have that, it gives you that confidence because you're not going to accomplish a work like that if you're full of timidity and doubts and fears of failure. You're not going to accomplish something big like that. You're not going to be used by God. You're not going to be used by Him in a big way unless you have a big vision. And so Paul had a big vision. A vision of proclaiming Christ not only from Jerusalem to Illyricum, but all the way over to Spain. And so he wants them to know, this is why I'm speaking so boldly for you, because I want to have a bold impact for the sake of the kingdom. It doesn't matter what your gift is. It might be preaching. It might be teaching. You'll, it might be something else. It might be mercy. It might be gifts of service. It might be giving. It might be whatever. But you're going to have a big impact only when you are ambitious to be used by God however you'll be used. And so Paul was bold. He was bold. You know, may the Lord give us that. That is the need, right? We all feel it. We all sense it. We want to speak. We want to represent Him. We want to stand for Him. And we'll do it when we know that He's appointed us, He's called us, He's given us a message, that He strengthens us, fills us, And then we turn with that and we want to do something big for Him. We want to make an offering to Him. We want to worship Him with everything we have. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful for the Word as it's preached this morning. I, O Lord, need to hear these things. Would you open my lips to speak as I ought to speak? May you make me a vessel boldly who speaks of your gospel and the love of Christ, who tells others of what you've done for me, who understands that I've been given a commission and I have no right to shrink back. Make us bold, O Lord, a gospel lighthouse ambitious to do great things for you so that we speak as we ought to speak. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.